Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rabbi Eric, and welcome home from your rabbinical conference. How was that? It was good. Welcome home from being home, because uh, <laughs> uh, as I told you earlier before the show, uh, every year uh, the Reform rabbis of mostly America, but also Canada and Mexico, um, we get together for a conference typically in a fun city and typically in a warm city. And of course, this year, uh, it was from the warmth of our sofas at home. And so that made the conference very different, of course. But as, as someone said, noting the realities of, of our conference, uh, in light of the year, they said, you know, this was, this was the conference that none of us necessarily wanted, but that many of us needed. And uh, I think that was the case for me. Any Hebrew 101 classes or refreshers? <laughs> uh, no, but I did. Uh, the dean of our rabbinical campus in Jerusalem, uh, whose name is Rabbi Michael Marmer, gave an incredible lecture, as he always does, on what it says about Judaism that vowels are not in the Torah. And it was fascinating. Um, and what he did is he took several examples of verses from the Torah that could mean something different if you re-vocalize them. And so Hebrew, unlike English, the vowels are not inherent in the word. And so words can be pronounced differently and thus mean different things. And then, and then in his talk, we looked at the variant meanings and uh, it's just fun stuff. And it, it just shows the richness of Judaism as an interpretive tradition. And I just, I eat that stuff up. That may be a, an interesting point at some point as we begin talking about Scripture today. Uh, the interpretation of Scripture isn't just something that we clergy professionals do. It's something that is inherently designed into the Scripture itself. As the Hebrew consonants are stretched apart with prefixes and suffixes and uh, different tense changes or whatever, you still have to make some assumptions about which vowel sounds to to connect all those consonants with, and that can change the meaning of the text. I, they've put the the dots and the dashes all over uh, the Hebrew text, the scholarly Hebrew text. But what I guess we need to remember is that was someone's interpretation of the original That's text. Right. That's right. And even, I mean, there's a lot to say that, you know what, I'm not, I won't get into it because I, I am excited to delve into our topic today. And this is going to be, uh, if we're ready, uh, you, you have your three, Joel? I think so. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to do something new today, which is we're going to just kind of do a little bit of a round robin going back be between me and Joel of the three verses or stories that we find most powerful or important, either in Torah, Bible, or Scripture. And so, um, you know, it, it's like Price is Right, the most important stories <laughs> you need to know in Judaism or Christianity. These would be the top three answers for each of us. Of course, 
I, I'm a, I, I feel like this is safe to say that I'm speaking for you in this also, that these are my top three today. Ask me tomorrow and they might be different. <laughs> totally fair. So I, do you want to uh, go first or, or do you want to draw straws? How do you want to do this? You're coming off the conference, so we can do a snake draft. Uh, you go first and then I'll go first, second, and then you go second, third, and I'll go third. Got it. Wow. Yay. Yeah. Always the engineer, Joel. I love it. Okay. No, that's a fantasy thing. It's a fantasy football, fantasy soccer thing. You do a snake draft to pick your team. Right. Uh, Don't give me a new (laughs) hobby to get into. My first one, which I'll put at number three for today, is uh, it's a verse that's well known to almost any educated Jew. And my guess is educated Christian as well. And it is the first, or it takes place the first time that God talks to his name here is Avram. His name later, of course, becomes Avraham, which is a a different subject. And what God says to him is, go forth from your native land, leave your homeland, the place of your father, the place where you grow up, and take a journey to a land that I will show you. And the two Hebrew word, the imperative that God gives to Avram is lech lecha, which although those two words sound similar, they're actually not, they're not related. Lech is the imperative form of go. And lecha is a, is a second person male pronoun. So go forth you male person, namely God speaking to Avram. And I find this particularly powerful because I think that wherever we are in life, there's all, whether we feel like we are secure, whether it's a liminal moment of change and insecurity, a time of darkness or a time of blessing, we should always be heeding the call of going Fourth, And I, I've preached on this many times, and I'm not going to give a 20-minute sermon right now. But one thing that I very much appreciate that is inherent in God's command to, to Avram is that Avram doesn't know the steps before him. It's not like he sees the steps laid out and says, okay, I'm going to go forth and then I will have wealth and I will have health and I will have happiness and all these things. There is an element of faith involved that Avram has faith in God. And taking, you know, I, I'm reminded of Lao Tzu. Uh, it's not Lao Tzu. It's um, maybe it is Lao Tzu. Every journey begins with a single step. It is. Uh, that that first step uh, is one of courage. It's one of faith. It's sometimes the hardest to take. And uh, it, it's a message that we all need to remember, especially people of faith, uh, given that it's a command that's given to the first Jew. And it's the first thing that God says to him. And so um, it plays a major role in how I think about Judaism, in my theology, and really how I strive to be growing as a person. Not doesn't mean I succeed as much as I want to, but certainly in the striving. And then one last thing I'll say about Lech Lecha is the, the Hebrew grammar of the expression 
can also mean, in addition to go forth on a physical journey, it can also mean go on a spiritual journey into yourself. That lacha can also mean kind of of you or in you. So it, you know, I mean, it's like the joke, go to India to find yourself. No, go explore you. Explore the inner reaches of who you are to find and discover yourself. And so uh, that's my number three today. I'm going to try to do mine in, uh, for Christians, the canonical order. Um, And I can't do these first chunks. And it's more than a verse. It's the two stories, the two creation stories that sit right beside one another. And one of them, the reason I love that first creation story, the Genesis 1, is as God creates, God calls everything God creates good, names it all good, and names humanity very good. There's so much about the way Christians do theology and and scripture interpretation that is bad-focused. We look for the evil and the sin and the the corruption and the stain, and uh, but we need to know that God's creation, as God invented it, imagined it, and pulled it out of nothingness into being, God, God's own self, deemed that good, even very good. And I, I find that to be a beautiful, positive reminder, even when we do have to pause for a minute and look at the bad, the, the racial injustice or the, the social calamities or the terrible poverty, uh, the mistreatment of children or the neglect of the elderly, uh, the abuse of the immigrant. All those things have been true for as long as humanity can remember. But underneath and behind all of it is a very good creation of God. And it means that the potential for it to be very good now and again is still there, still inside God's imagination for who we are and how we roll through life with one another. Uh, And it gives me hope to know that God did not create something that was inherently flawed or uh, doomed to fail, but called it good, knew it is very good, and insists that uh, anything that God makes is blessed and holy and good in God's own eyes. So that's the Genesis, um, the Genesis 1 story. The Genesis 2 story attaches to that and begins to imagine the source of evil. Um, and as much as people want to say it's the snake or it's the person or it's the female, the real source of evil is us trying to be God, trying to know who exactly how this, what this God and God alone can know. Um, and I, that, that lack of humility in Genesis 2 is the source of our um, unable an inability to accept the good garden as God created it and to try to imagine for ourselves what would be good or what would be better than even God's very good creation. Uh, and that, that kind of arrogance is, is to me the source of the evil in the world. And it's not a creation of God. It's, it's a, it's a human arrogance to try to be God. And so those two, together 
um, it helped me make sense of everything else that comes after them. Without them, it's it, I wouldn't know how to look at the rest of the world, at my own self, at things that are going on in life. I it, They remind me to look for the good and to understand the, the negative or the bad that's around it. The second one for me, it comes at the beginning of, of different Gospels, but uh, the word is often translated good news. You'll hear a, a Christian preacher talk about the good news, <laughs> and if you're not inside the Christian world, uh, good news needs defining, and a lot of people struggle to define it, They or they assume to know what it means. Uh, just before I go into any more detail, do do you know the term good news? Have you heard Christians use that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. What, from your impression, do you think good news means? Jesus. <laughs> nice. That's just my go-to Christian trivia answer, <laughs> Nice. You're like a kid at a children's sermon. Perfect. Uh, right? uh, Jesus came to save, to save humanity from its sins is, is the good news. That seems to be the typical Christian misperception of good news. When Jesus in Mark, which is the oldest New Testament gospel and a source for Matthew and Luke, he in his first 12 or 13 verses rushes through what Matthew and Luke take three or four chapters to say. And as Jesus is beginning his Galilean ministry, the first words Jesus says in Mark is something like this. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. The good news isn't about Jesus. It is about the great community of God being at hand. Now, Jesus is an essential part of that for those who believe in the Christian faith. Jesus is the critical catalyst that makes the kingdom of God possible, revealed, and promised. But the good news isn't Jesus or what Jesus said or what Jesus did or how he died or how he rose. The good news is the result that comes out of all of the Jesus stuff. That there will be a reconciliation of all God's people and that we will find a way to live with one another in peace and in justice and in love because of who he is, sure. But he isn't the good news. The good news is the community that he's delivering for all of God's people and all of God's creation. And I find way too many Christians uh, forgetting about the community of justice, peace, and love and talking about Jesus a whole lot. <laughs> and I want to tell them, do you not remember what Jesus said the good news is? He didn't say it was him. <laughs> he said it was the community that is coming for all of God's children. And, and I find that to be a shocker. Uh, and exciting. It's the first words that Jesus speaks in the oldest gospel, and people don't even read it. 
we we jump to John three sixteen, which was the latest gospel. Uh, and and I still well, that's what the football players jump to, that's right? right. <laughs> football fans, putting the, yeah, putting it on their eyes. That's right. Yeah, they put it on their their blackout, and oh my goodness! And I love that text, but that text doesn't mean the same thing if you think Jesus is the good news versus if you think the coming kingdom of God is the good news. Um, that three sixteen verse means something really different once you hear it in Jesus's context of euangelion or good news. So my my number two and number one are very close together, but because of where my head's at and has been at this past year, um, I'm deliberately uh, choosing uh, one that I picked for number one. And so my number two comes from Deuteronomy, and I'm going to read the context. Um, Moses is talking to the Israelites about the Torah that has been given and is reminding them of its importance and also of their commitment and those sorts of things. And so Moses says the following, and I'll have the uh, references in the show notes. Uh, Surely this instruction, namely the Torah, this instruction which I enjoin you this day is not too baffling for you, nor is it beyond reach. It is not in the heavens that you should say, who among us can go up to the heavens and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it. And again, I, I, I guess I'm a fan today of the pithy Hebrew sayings. That my, my previous was two Hebrew words. This is three Hebrew words. Lo b'shemaim he. It is not in the heavens. And both in the context of this story in Deuteronomy and in the larger context of Judaism and the way that we learn and interpret Torah. I love this because it shows the democratization of learning, of Jewish knowledge in some ways of authority, that it is the the truth, whatever that is, capital T, uh, is not in the heavens. God gave us the Torah, and now it is a human endeavor. And I'm, I'm having a little bit of a deja vu because I may have told this story on a, on a previous episode, but very briefly, um, there's a, a very famous story from the Talmud. And again, it, it's I don't think the story is meant to be taken literally, but putting it very briefly, there's an argument about something. What that thing is, is not relevant to, to even what follows afterwards. And one of the rabbis, one of the learned rabbis is presenting every form of argument about why he's right. But all the other rabbis disagree with him. And eventually, and again, I'm, 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 it's like taking a three-hour movie and making it two sentences. It, it, this story needs to be really savored. But for time's sake, eventually this rabbi says, well, if I'm right, let God himself, and unfortunately the language of the Talmud is gendered, let God himself come down and prove to you that I'm right. And sure enough, God's voice says, the law goes according to him, he is right. And you'd think, 
that that would be the end of the argument because the whole enterprise of the Talmud is to discern what God wants us to do. And here is God, God's self, telling us what God wants to do. And one of the other rabbis stands up, looks at God, again, all metaphorical, and shouts these three words, lo b'shemaim he, namely, or not namely, but meaning, you know what, God, stay out of it. Mind your own business. You gave us the Torah. It no longer is in heaven. It's up to us. And I just find that it's it's somewhat... Um, uh, there, there's a there's an element of rebellion to that that I like, but but more than that, it's it's about the fact that anyone has access to knowledge, to Judaism, to faith. It, it's not for the special few. It's not for the rabbis alone. It's not for a caste to use that word again. It's for everybody, and uh, it, that might be my favorite verse of Torah. Just not the one I'm going to use today as my favorite. What I'm going to use today as my number one, it comes from Exodus. And this is a story that all of our listeners will know, regardless of faith, because it's just so famous and it's been in movies. <laughs> Namely, Moses kind of has this moment where he, in his identity wakes up. Something happens within him. He sees an Egyptian beating a, a, a slave and kills the Egyptian. But before he kills the Egyptian, there's this line that says, Moses looked this way and that way, and not seeing anyone, Moses kills the Egyptian. Now, the common reading, which is not wrong, I mean, it absolutely can be read that way, is in the same way that you might look for a police officer as you're going really fast, and you don't see a police officer, so you do go really fast. You know, Moses was looking this way and that way to make sure he wouldn't get in trouble, to make sure he wouldn't get caught. But there's a beautiful reading that I think speaks to the ideal of, of what we should all strive to be, and that is... Moses looked this way and that way and didn't see the Hebrew word is an ish, a man. But in some places of the Bible, the Hebrew word ish is an honorific. It, it's like, a, it's not just a, any person. It is a good person, a menchi person, a holy person. And so the way I choose to read this is Moses looked this way and that way and did not see a person that would do the right thing. Therefore, he did the right thing. And so this isn't a story of Moses being tricky or perhaps even cowardly, but the opposite. That, And it's an injunction for all of us that when we see an injustice, yes, we can look this way and that way to see if there are righteous people around. But if there's not, you have to be the righteous person. I have to be the righteous person. And so it, it's not just a story about the history of something that happened in Moses's life. It's, it's, a, it's a call to action that I think is relevant to many moments in each of our lives. So my third one is at the very end, uh, Revelation 22. It's the last chapter. 
And in it, uh, Revelation is a weird book. And for those who try to read it, they try to see it sometimes as a tarot card Ouija board <laughs> reading of some future. Uh, most of it is not that. Most of it is a description of what was already happening um, under Nero and the oppression that many of the early Christians were already experiencing. And it had to be written in code language so that the writers and the readers wouldn't suffer even more. Uh, but at the very end of Revelation 22, despite all the suffering that the whole book has already just described, and the the hopeful judgments and freedoms that will come out of this when it's all over, the writer imagines what he calls it, uh, we sometimes subtitle it, the river of life. Um, and there's this, this river uh, of the water of life, which somehow is flowing into the city, Jerusalem, or the grand city that lands on us from God, from the throne of God. And reaching across this river is the tree of life again. And it produces 12 kinds of fruit. And you can attach that to the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, it's also attached to a, a different fruit for each month of the year. And the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the peoples, the nations. And nothing accursed is found anymore. Um, uh, under this tree that reaches across the sides of the river of life and is the new symbol of the new garden. I, I love that imagery um, at the end. And to think about the author of Revelation who was suffering and struggling and seeing atrocities that he could compare to dragons and seeing death and destruction that he could compare to fire um, and beasts he still has the audacity in the midst of all that real destruction around him to imagine the throne of God, a crystal river flowing from it, healing every people, every nation, and the tree of life being regrown again with its 12 kinds of fruit to make sure that everyone has plenty when they come home to the the city where the river of the uh, river of life and the tree of life are growing and that's that's my third one um it's how do we in the midst of the suffering and struggles that we see around us keep our eyes um, honest about what's going on and hold on to hope out in front of it some call it the Stockdale Paradox. Perhaps you have you might know that one. Um, I don't, but I'm writing it down. <laughs> uh, there was, in Prisoners of War, uh, he, Admiral Stockdale was asked why, why some people survived being imprisoned and why some people didn't. And he said, some people didn't survive because they thought hope was coming tomorrow. And then it didn't. And so they thought hope was coming tomorrow, and it didn't. And so they thought hope was coming tomorrow, and it didn't. And it broke them. 
other people didn't survive because they thought hope was never coming. And they had no reason to look ahead. The Stockdale paradox is that survival uh, has to do with total honest acceptance of the harsh realities that are true and present right here, right now, and design your life for them and hold on to hope. Okay, feedback on these scriptures yeah, to one another. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing is I, I think all three of yours, not surprisingly perhaps, are, are related, especially <laughs> one in three. I mean, if I understand you correctly, and please tell tell me if I don't, the, the idea, the, the goal of number three, uh, of if we can achieve that, brings us back to the tov ma'od, the, ver- the goodness, the very goodness of creation. Well, if, if you, when you look around and you see real brokenness, the temptation is to blame it on God or blame it on God's absence or blame it on a, a bad design or blame it on a, a bad character of God. Like, okay, it was designed good, but then God messed with it and inserted evil into it. The reason I depend on number one is to maintain the holiness and purity of God and to remember that God and God's creation are holy and good. So if if I'm tempted to look at an enemy, uh, you know, a brother who's an enemy as instead of as a neighbor, I got to remember something about them is a good and holy creation. I, I heard the, the closing lecture of the conference was literally one of the best and inspiring 55 minutes I've had in years. And it was a, a rabbi it, coming from an incredibly scholarly and textual place, speaking specifically about Genesis 1. And he, his thesis said – it was one of those lectures where I need to listen to it again. There was so much there. Um, but he said if we really took Genesis 1 seriously, namely the fact that humans are created in the divine image, if we really took that seriously – we wouldn't even need anything else in the Torah. And, and then the, the rest of his lecture was offshoots of that and interpretations of text. I mean, it was amazing. And I would love to talk to you about it, like I said, later. I love that. Um, yeah, the commandments I, come I, I, from our un- inability to accept the core truth that we're all up right. in the image of God. We only need commandments because we forget the core truth. Exactly. And then someone, of course, asked in the chat, well, you know, what about Hitler? And he brought up, much much to my uh, delight, uh, what's known as Godwin's Law. Do you know that one? Nope. So Godwin's Law refers to, um, you know, an argument, someone can't win an argument when, when they bring up Hitler. <laughs> and, it, and and also, but that's not really what the law is. The law is the longer an argument goes on, the more and more likely it is that someone will bring up Hitler. It, you know, well, well, what about Hitler? You know, in the case of, you know, seeing the image of God or seeing the goodness. And I mean, you could, I know we're laughing about it, but it, it, our, our listeners, I'm sure, can relate to that kind of thing. You bring up the most extreme thing possible, yep. which often in the context of theology and good and evil is Hitler and the Holocaust. Unfortunately, there are other examples too when i was a kid there was a, a, a there was an owl that sold tootsie roll pops on saturday morning in the middle of cartoons 
how many licks does it take to get to the middle of a Tootsie Roll pop? I remember that. One, two, crunch, three. <laughs> uh, right? So I, I sometimes wonder how many posts does it take to get to Hitler in a Facebook comment <laughs> section? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Okay, so I want to debate with you about the middle one. God, stay out of this. Sure. Oh, my gosh. I am so upset with that. those rabbis. Like, no. God, get back in here. We're totally messed up, apparently, because we had uh, this real clear understanding that we were willing to fight for and argue about with one of our brothers. You just dropped in and told us all, we're wrong, and rather than accept, humbly accept, your judgment of, oh my gosh, what have we been doing to our friend? We're so sorry. Please teach us, become our new rabbi, because we obviously have a lot to learn from you, right? And God, you're dismissed, but thank you for clearing that up. You know, this stay out of it, arrogance and hypocrisy, I'm upset with that council of rabbis, not encouraged by them. So I, I totally hear that. Um, and, you know, nothing in Judaism is simple, let alone the Talmud. I don't know if this helps, but uh, the story goes on, the Talmud page goes on, that at some later date, Elijah, who is the harbinger, har- I always get that word wrong, har- harbinger? Har- yeah, that's how I say it. It's not a harbinger. Okay. It's a harbinger. Right. <laughs> the harbinger of the Messiah, that Elijah is kind of the announcer of the Messiah. And so Elijah has special access to God, especially in the Talmud. Anyways, Elijah asks God, like, what? how did you feel after that? And God says, with a smile, the Talmud says, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. And it's almost like, you know, like God's being a little bit of a trickster here, that God wanted, God's happy that that happened with that story. I'm not saying you you shouldn't be happy at the rabbis, but it's worth knowing um, that coda to the story. For me, it reminds me that Judaism very much places a priority on this uh, ideal that according to the majority, one should incline. And so even if one is wrong, in some ways they can also be right if that's what the majority agrees with. And it's it's strange and it's possibly uh, counterintuitive, but it's also beautiful in, in some way that it's like we really have to learn from one another, grapple with one another, struggle and figure this stuff out. Yes, God gave us the Torah, but now it is our job to live it, to figure it out. And we can't rely on God anymore. Oof. Yeah, I can't, I can't get there just yet. I can see God chuckling. I can see, you know, it's, it's imagine just for a second as a parable slash parallel. My three sons are arguing about something. And I step in and take the side of one of them. And I can see all three of them telling me, Dad, get out of here. This isn't your fight. This is ours. We want to work this out. And me being proud of that, like happy that they were engaged with one another, that they were that committed to one another, that they were willing to push and pull and create that 
relational tension with one another so that they can find their own groupness. Um, and I don't want them to come to my spot. I want them to come to their spot, which I trust will be healthy and holy in some measure. Um, so I can see that, but I, I have a hard time not hearing the dismissal of God from the conversation as a betrayal of the whole reason we do this. So one, and I don't want to say the answer because this is, I, I am not a Talmud scholar. And frankly, even if I am, it's still just one person's interpretation. Um, is, is that the, uh, the rabbi bringing God into the argument th- th- disobeyed the rules. <laughs> the, the, the rule, you know, like the rules of the system is, it is, is, in the chevruta, in the friendships and the relationships of the rabbis for them to figure it out. And going outside of that to rely on God was a no-no. It's not, I mean, because again, the ultimate desire is to figure out what God wants. And that's a question we ask ourselves in 2021. Like, what does God want from me? If what, when I read this Torah, this law, verse, story, whatever, wh- what am I supposed to do with it? How am I supposed to act accordingly with God? So th- that is, if not a question, the question. Um, but within this context of the rabbis arguing about it, this one r- rabbi kind of going outside the system is what the is what the no-no is. So let's parallel parallel that with the Genesis 2 creation story for a minute. The no-no of the original sin anyway was trying to know exactly what God and God alone can know. And and so in a way reaching for that fruit that apple, some call it, but it just the fruit of the tree of knowledge is a little bit like that single rabbi reaching for God and sucking God into the debate. Uh, and to say, now, wait a minute, dude, don't grab the fruit of direct God knowledge, because that's not the point. In fact, that's a dangerous path for we humans. Stay here stay human, stay relational, and keep things going. And if you grab for the fruit of God's direct knowledge, you're probably going to get a distorted fruit or a rotten fruit anyway. So um, God, no, 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 we really didn't mean to reach for the fruit. Sorry. <laughs> don't don't feed us the fruit, please, God. Uh, it'll mess up our debate here. Um, so I can, I can play along with that if I frame it through the Genesis 2... Uh, lands that's a little. A, I, I love that added context. That's that's really that's a neat context, and it's it's Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, if anyone wants to know or cares, that is the that is the one rabbi out amongst the other ones um, that says, "If I am right, if I am right." And and of course, I, I'll post the story. One one of the beauties of this particular Talmud stories um, is that it's. You don't need any background to read the story and kind of get it, uh, unlike (laughs) many other passages in the Talmud. All right, one more debate point. Did you say that you you think Moses looked around, didn't find anybody else who was going to act, and so acted and did the right thing by killing Uh. 
Yeah, I, I knew that was going to come up because you don't miss anything. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, so I am not. I, I want to be very clear, and I'm glad you asked that because I would have forgotten to bring it up as now as I am. I am not suggesting by any means that Moses killing that Egyptian was the right thing. But I am suggesting by that reading that Moses thought it was the right thing. And no one else was coming to the aid of that slave. And so Moses came to the aid of that slave. Now, yes, he did so with violence and the worst kind of violence there is, namely murder, and then ran away. So that is not to be emulated or idealized at all. Mm -hmm. um, but the general idea that he wasn't looking this way or that way so that he wouldn't get caught, but rather, is anyone going to do anything for this poor slave? And at the time, he didn't know he, he was an Israelite. So it's not like he was identifying with that slave, at least not explicitly anyway. And so that, to me, is what I find inspirational, not the specificity of the murder itself. But that is a very fair reading, Joel. Okay. So let's pick that one up and, and translate it forward in this social media camera in our pockets on 24-7. And we whip it out and start recording as soon as we see something that we think might be an injustice. Um, there has been in me sometimes not anger that I'm watching a video of a terrible injustice, but kind of a self-righteous, judgmental disappointment in the crowd who are videotaping it, but not doing anything to stop it. Now, as soon as I feel that, I go, Joel, <laughs> get off your high horse. You'd be a chicken if you were in the midst of it too, and you're documenting it so that real justice can come later. You don't have to be the sword of justice into this moment. But I, I wonder how many people were standing around filming, watching for the nine minutes that a police officer's knee was on the back of George Floyd's neck. And at some point, did some Moses-like person look around, realize nobody's going to do anything, and not just run over and tackle the stupid cop off of George. And I've, I've wondered that several times in my head, and I've wondered if I would have had the guts to do that. And I don't know if I would have. Yeah, and I think that is, first of all, I think you point to an incredibly real and important tension there. And also, I, I, I really appreciate the truth that it's so easy for us, and I don't mean us as clergy or uh, anything else other than, you know, witnesses a, 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 well after the event. It's kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking of, you know, e it's so easy to judge someone in that moment, but then the honesty of, I don't know how I would act. I certainly know right now how I would like to act, but there's been situations where I've been frozen. Someone has said something to me awkward or I've witnessed in the supermarket maybe a parent berating their child and don't necessarily say anything but certainly think things, right? So I, I think it's a, it's a very fair question we all need to ask ourselves. Like one thing I, I do 
strive to be is and I don't I don't know if this is a real word but it's certainly something I've used is to strive to be an upstander as opposed to a bystander that to that when we do see something it's like you know and and I talk to our high schoolers all the time about this the you know I mean kids are made fun of for all sorts of things and it's one thing you know not to join in and make fun of them because you don't want to be cruel but is that even enough like it's a, are are you not willing you should maybe not be willing to be friends with the people who are doing those things or call it out yourself and of course easier said than done especially as a teenager or even adult where there's repercussions to those actions and yeah none of these have easy answers but i think the we all need to take that real look in the mirror about about what we would or would like to do in those situations I do want to say one comment that it, it should be obvious, but not necessarily, is that I think, and you could tell me if you agree, that the, what we picked, you know, the six things we picked, in some ways say more about you and I than they necessarily do about Judaism and Christianity. I mean, clearly, if we're each picking our top three things, those are reflecting our priorities. And it's not to say that they aren't priorities in our religions, but it's also how we choose to read them, how we choose to teach them, the fact that we're choosing them at all. And so I, I do want to name that because uh, it, it's an interesting glimpse into, I think, our theologies, our priorities, how we think, and that sort of thing. I know mine have moved. For once upon a time, it was Micah 6. Um you, you know, you sh what what love does just, the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. Um, another one was. I'm still trying. The third one is my struggle, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> the the second one probably would have been at some point in my life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Right? Because um, it's it, on your arm. You don't need to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's the mirror image of Genesis one. But the reason that is important to me is because of Genesis one not because of itself. Or there's one in Galatians 3. Um, there's no longer uh, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And, and those probably would have been my top three. But the more I've studied and preached and been in the midst of this, the kind of wider my bookends get and the, the farther I'm trying to see points on the arc of all that God might be doing. And while those three cute little points still draw the arc, um, and they're important points on the arc, I, I want the bigger high altitude picture. And so what was it in the beginning? What will it be in the end? And what is the critical point between those two uh, is how I come to my top three now. That's great. I also don't want to think or want our listeners to think that these are meant to be a distill distillization of um, our religions. In other words, there are so much more to both Judaism and Christianity, let alone <laughs> your version of Christianity and my version of Judaism than the three stories we shared. Um, and like Hillel said, when he was present, he, uh, a potential convert came up to him and said, teach me all of Judaism while standing on one foot. And he said, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. 
He didn't finish by saying that. He finished by saying, now go and study. And so even <laughs> though these three things might be, you know, quote, the big three, if they even are, um, you know, that, that it, it would be doing both of our respective religions a huge disservice to say that, that you know, that's it. Plus, we wouldn't really need to be employed anymore either. <laughs> Well, Rabbi Eric, as always, uh, Ata Aish, you are the man. Oh, please. Gam Ata, you <laughs> as well. I've been practicing my Spanish. I had to think about Hebrew for so long. <laughs> you thought I was yes, speaking Gam Spanish. Gam Ata, my friend. <laughs> oh, my. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real. <laughs> <laughs>